Welcome to the MD Anderson Plastic Surgery Podcast. I'm Malki Asad, and today I'm excited to have Dr. Alexander Meritli as our guest to discuss sacrectomy and spinal reconstruction. Dr. Meritli is an assistant professor in the Department of Plastic Surgery here at MD Anderson. His clinical practice and research are focused on spinal, sacral, and posterior trunk reconstruction. Welcome, Dr. Meritli, to this podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into the reconstruction of spinal and sacral defects, I would like to ask you about the indications for sacrectomy and spinal resection. Can you please talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, I'll talk about indications for sacrectomy first. Uh, there are um, two, two main indications. Uh, one is for a primary bone tumor, uh, and the other is for uh, a metastatic uh, tumor. Metastatic disease, as we all know, um, unfortunately is not considered to be a, a, a curative condition. Therefore, uh, any type of resection for a metastatic implant is uh, for symptomatic improvement only. Uh, whereas um, sacrectomy for a primary bone tumor uh, is considered a surgery with a curative intent. The same is true for uh, vertebrectomies, uh, which are a type of resection that is germane to the uh, vertebral column of the spine as opposed to the sacrum. When we're talking about oncologic re resection of the spine, again, there's two main indications. Uh, one is for uh, symptomatic improvement in the setting of uh, palliation. So a patient that has uh, metastatic renal cell carcinoma to the spine or prostate cancer to the spine that's causing pain uh, or neurologic compression, um, they may necessitate uh, resection of the spinal bone, the vertebra, in order to create additional space for the spinal cord and the nerve roots in order to improve uh, the symptomatic complaints of the patient. However, uh, primary bone tumors also occur in the vertebral bodies, such as chordomas, chondrosarcomas, and osteosarcomas, and those can be resected on block with curative intent, which is another indication for an oncologic spinal resection. And following resection, bony reconstruction is generally indicated to restore spinal stability. And in your recently published article in PRS, you showed that patients who had vascularized bone grafts have higher union rates and lower complication rates than patients who had non-vascularized bone grafts. What are your recommendations regarding the use of vascularized bone grafts for these patients? And you generally recommend it for all patients or high-risk patients? That's an excellent question. Um, Regarding this study in, in particular, this was a highly selected patient population in that the only patients that we included in our analysis were patients that had primary bone tumors. Therefore, these were patients that could have a removal, surgical removal of their bone tumor and have essentially a normal life expectancy afterwards. Um, this is important because when the vertebral body is removed, that is an inherently destabilizing type of resection. And stabilization of the spinal cord and the, and the vertebral column is absolutely necessary uh, in order for the patient to uh, continue to participate uh, in activities of daily living. Now, uh, 
in patients with a limited life expectancy, such as those that are undergoing a palliative resection for metastatic disease, it's very unlikely that they would outlive the, uh, the, the uh, functional lifespan of their spinal hardware. However, patients that have a normal life expectancy, their spinal instrumentation is at significant risk for fatigue failure over the ensuing years of the rest of their life. And so because of that, vascularized bone is very important in order to maintain a durable, uh, lifelong uh, reconstruction for these patients. There are different types of vascularized bone graft that could be used, like the fibula, the rib, the iliac crest. Which one is the most commonly used in your practice? What are the advantages and disadvantages of each? That's also a good question. Um, there are reports uh, with, with using a variety of different types of vascularized bone for reconstruction of the vertebral column. Um, the advantage of using something like the rib or the scapula is that it theoretically can be inset uh, as a pedicled flap without having to uh, do microsurgery. However, like all pedicled flaps, you are limited in the arc of rotation of the flap based on the length of the pedicle. So you're, uh, you are somewhat constrained in the manner and location in which you place the bone flap. Uh, also, there are some reports of using the iliac crest for reconstructions uh, along the lumbar spine, also as the pedicle flap. Uh, in my practice, um, despite the potential use of these pedicled bone flaps, I prefer to use the free fibula flap as my vascularized bone of choice. And there are a number of reasons for that. Number one, um, it is a significantly stronger bone than the rib, scapula, or iliac crest. And this has been documented uh, in a number of basic science studies uh, in which the biomechanical in which biomechanical testing has been done in a comparative fashion uh, between these types of bones. Uh, the fibula itself can be thought of as having four vortices, uh, whereas the iliac crest and scapula uh, only have two or three, depending on how you harvest the graft. Um, also, the, uh, the fact that the uh, rib uh, comes from the membranous skeleton embryologically uh, compared to um, the uh, um, endochondral skeleton, which the uh, appendicular skeleton is derived from, um, also uh, contributes to uh, differences in, in the strength and the biomechanical profile of the two different types of bone, with the fibula uh, clearly being the stronger, more stout bone compared to the rib. When using free flaps like the fibula, finding appropriate recipient vessels might be challenging, with, especially with the massive resections. What are the most commonly recipient vessels you use for your vascular anastomosis? Uh, without, a, without a question, uh, the most challenging aspect of doing a vascularized, free vascularized bone flap to the spine or the sacrum is finding uh, adequate recipient vessels and performing the microsurgical anastomosis. Um, the, based on uh, our study, the most commonly used recipient vessels for 
vertebrectomy reconstructions are the segmental perforating vessels uh, that uh, go on to become the intercostal uh, vessels in the chest and the uh, lumbar perforating vessels in the lumbar spine. Uh, those vessels emerge um, from the aorta and IVC respectively and uh, travel around the vertebral bodies. And at this location, they're approximately two millimeters in diameter. Um, so if they are available, those are the recipient vessels of choice. However, it's important to coordinate this part of the case with the resecting surgeon so that they know to leave uh, a cuff of adequate length uh, so that these vessels can be utilized uh, for a recipient site. Um, otherwise, they will be ligated uh, very close to their takeoff from the aorta or the IVC, uh, which makes them much more difficult to use. And is there a difference in the insight of the fibula between patients who have isolated spine defects versus sacrectomy with spine? Yes, so um, typically when a fibula is used for a vertebrectomy defect, it's used as a single strut. Um, there are different uh, surgeons and different institutions that uh, will make, will, will design the fibula for a vertebrectomy as a, uh, as a double strut or a double barrel fibula. But at MD Anderson, we prefer to com combine the vascularized fibula with a um, interbody cage uh, that's packed with non-vascularized bone graft. And these two things, the cage and the flap, are placed in parallel with each other. When the cage is used, there, isn't, there simply is not enough room to make a double-barreled or double-strut fibula for a vertebrectomy defects. So we therefore uh, use a single strut. Uh, in the sacrum, uh, we perform a closing wedge osteotomy of the fibula and insert the fibula as an inverted V with the apex of the V seated within the caudal L5 vertebral body and then the two distal ends of the fibula flap V are fixated using hardware to the remaining iliac bones. These are really some great points. Before moving to the soft tissue reconstruction, I wanted to ask you a question that might be related more to the orthopedic surgeons, which is the hardware. What is the most commonly used hardware that can offer the best stability and the lowest revision rate for these patients? Uh, the current standard of care is to use multi-axial uh, pedicle screws, which are kind of the standard hardware for, uh, for, for spinal uh, instrumentations and fusions. Uh, these are um, screws that are placed through the pedicles of the vertebral body and then linked together with uh, a titanium or a cobalt chromium uh, rod on either side in order to stabilize the vertebra. Um, that's, those, that's what's re referred to as the posterior spinal instrumentation. And then typically with a destabilizing uh, resection such as a vertebrectomy, uh, anterior instrumentation is used as well. The anterior instrumentation is essentially the interbody cage that I mentioned earlier. And it spans the vertebral body defect uh, between the cranial and caudal uh, vertebral bodies that remain. The, uh, Sacral instrumentation uh, for sacrectomy also involves multi-axial pedicle screws that are linked by rods 
and then there are addition, there's additional hardware uh, that is placed into the iliac bones. So because of that, we, we often refer to it as ilio-lumbar instrumentation because it links the iliac bones and the lumbar vertebra. And depending on the patient's body habitus and the size of the resection, these, these screws may be linked together with two rods, meaning one rod on either side, the right and the left sides. The downside of using four rods is that it's a greater volume of hardware, which of course can contribute to a higher risk of infection. Also, it can make it more difficult to, to, to create a um, soft tissue closure uh, over top of the hardware if it is bulky and not low profile. Excellent. Now, moving to the soft tissue reconstruction, uh, in another recently published article in PRS, you showed that primary soft tissue reconstruction for spinal surgery patients is more cost effective than delayed reconstruction. What is your recommendation regarding soft tissue reconstruction for these patients? So the paper not only showed that it was more cost effective than delayed reconstruction, it showed that it was more cost effective than primary closure. Um, just uh, a, the standard wound closure that's done for spinal surgery. And again, this was a highly selected group of patients. It was only patients that were having spinal surgery for oncologic reasons. So it ex this, is not, uh, <clears throat> this is not for patients that are simply having spine surgery for degenerative disease uh, or an infection or some type of a scoliosis correction. This is for patients with spinal tumors. And patients with spinal tumors have a number of risk factors for poor wound healing. Um, they may have had radiation in the past, or they may be getting radiation in the future. They tend to be somewhat immunosuppressed. They've oftentimes have had multiple same-site surgeries. And all of those things contribute uh, to elevating their risk for a post-operative wound healing complication. Because of the high volume of hardware uh, that's within the spinal wound, a wound healing complication can be devastating because it can create a significant infection uh, to the point where the patient may become paralyzed, it may require multiple reoperations, and it's very difficult to fix uh, once an infection starts. So because of that, because of the high risk nature of these surgeries, we chose to take a more proactive approach and try to do everything we can uh, to prevent a wound healing complication from happening in the first place. And one of the ways that we can do that is by reconstructing these wounds in a very durable, reproducible, uh, sturdy way. The most common way to do that is by mobilizing the bilateral paraspinous muscles, which parallel the spine on either side, such that they can be uh, advanced over the hard hardware and imbricated so that, they, so that they fill the dead space in the posterior trunk. Um, as we all know, uh, the body uh, abhors a, uh, a vacuum, so it, it hates uh, dead space. Um, the way the body deals with dead space is it tends to fill it with fluid. And if that fluid becomes infected, then it creates an abscess. So the best way to protect that, prevent that from happening, is to eliminate the dead space by filling it with well-vascularized soft tissue. And in most situations, the paraspinous muscles fit the bill. And what about the sacrectomy defects? Do you use different kind of flaps? Sacrectomies are different. Um, so there's two, the sacrectomies can be thought of uh, in, in, a, in a simple way as either being a partial sacrectomy 
or a total sacrectomy. A partial sacrectomy leaves the portion of the sacrum that contributes to the pelvic ring. So typically that means S1 and S2 are left in continuity. Therefore, the mobile spine, meaning the lumbar, thoracic, and cervical spine, are still linked biomechanically to the pelvis and the lower extremities in a partial sacrectomy. In those situations, those types of resections typically do not require any type of instrumentation or hardware. And because of that, they also do not require any type of vascularized or non-vascularized bony reconstruction. With a partial sacrectomy, the main reconstructive indication is number one, to obliterate dead space, and number two, to prevent herniation of the bowel contents into the perineum. There are a number of ways that we do that. With a, post, with a partial sacrectomy, typically the surgery is performed in a single stage with the patient in the prone position. When we, when we seek to obliterate the dead space resulting from a partial sacrectomy, we like to use flap options that are easily accessible from the prone position so as to avoid an intraoperative position change. This can be done uh, relatively in a relatively straightforward way with bilateral VY gluteal fasciocutaneous advancement flaps. Other options include a pedicled S-gap flap or a pedicled lumbar artery perforator flap. All of these flaps can be inset into the region of the partial sacrectomy to obliterate dead space. When a total sacrectomy is done, a total sacrectomy is by definition destabilizing. So not only is there a soft tissue defect, but also a bony one that must be addressed. Because the entire sacrum is removed, it's a much larger surgery that's typically performed in two stages. The first stage is performed with the patient in the supine position from the anterior approach through a standard midline laparotomy. Through the laparotomy, the rectum is freed from the undersurface of the sacrum, as well as the major blood vessels that run through the area, the common external and internal iliacs, and the anterior bone cuts are made. We as plastic surgeons use this opportunity to uh, elevate a VRAM flap, a vertical rectus abdominis myocutaneous flap during the first stage in patients who are candidates for that type of flap. The VRAM flap can then be banked intra-abdominally where it will wait for us to then inset at the completion of the second stage of the, of the resection, which is done with the patient in the prone position. This is an excellent explanation on the soft tissue reconstruction for these patients. I wanted to ask you if nerve reconstruction plays any role for the patient with spinal resection or sacrectomy. That's a very uh, interesting question uh, and very astute of you to bring up. Um, I've thought of this, although I've never done nerve reconstruction myself. Um, with, with these types of resections, spinal nerve roots are ligated and transected. They have to be in order to be able to remove the vertebral body or the sacrum, because as we all know, the nerve roots run through the foramina of the sacrum, and it's not possible to remove the sacrum without ligating the nerve roots. The problem with reconstructing the nerves is because the spinal nerve roots 
are so close to the spinal cord, uh, there is concern that if they, the nerve roots themselves are not ligated, then it could potentiate a CSF leak. So with the nerve being ligated, the nerve stump is likely non-viable and not able to sprout axons to allow for a nerve graft or a nerve reconstruction to be of any use. Perfect. Now moving on to the post-operative care, these patients undergo an extensive surgery. Sometimes, as you mentioned, it's two-day surgery. What is the post-operative uh, care for these patients, especially regarding ambulation? So it's very important that these types of reconstructions only be performed in centers that have a significant amount of experience doing them. Because in reality, the plastic surgeon's role in the overall care of these patients is relatively minimal. So it's very important that these patients have nursing staff, physical therapists, and occupational therapists that are very experienced with the amount of effort and expertise that is required to care for them postoperatively. The way we approach the hospital course is as follows. So as soon as the patient is able, from a physiologic standpoint, to be upright, um, and from a pain control perspective to be upright, we allow them to ambulate. The uh, instrumentation that's placed bears the majority of the weight uh, in the early postoperative period, not the bone flap or the graft. Um, that becomes the, the, the major weight-bearing component later uh, once bone effusion has taken place. So because of that, um, most vertebrectomy patients are typically up and out of bed on postoperative day one or two um, if they're healthy and the resection was relatively straightforward. Older patients typically require uh, more of a recovery time in the hospital before they're able to actively participate with the physical therapists and ambulate in the hallways. Um, sacrectomy patients are different um, because of the fact that they're unable to sit for transfers because of the location of the flap and the incision sites uh, and simply because of the greater physiologic demand that the resection places on these patients. Uh, their time to ambulation is more prolonged. So usually I will allow for um, the patient to place pressure on the surgical site for brief periods of time for transfers or toileting, usually after about two weeks. And then at three weeks, I start a graduated sitting protocol so that within five days, they should be able to sit and lay on their surgical sites as they wish. When we transfer the patients from being in bed uh, to the upright position for them to be able to ambulate. Um, this is typically done uh, with uh, the use of physical therapists and with the use of a device called a tilt table um, that allows us to very gradually transfer the patient from the uh, horizontal supine or prone position into the upright position without having them to, without having them need to be seated for any period of time. It's also important because after these patients have been laying down for a number of days, their body physiologically has not, will not immediately um, uh, adapt to, their, their blood pressure will, will not increase as you would expect to allow, to accommodate for 
the patient being in an upright position. They, they're much more likely to have a vasovagal event after being uh, in the prone or supine position for a number of days, even in young, healthy patients. So the uh, tilt table allows for the patient to be placed into the upright position very gradually, uh, thereby um, minimizing the risk of the patient having a vasovagal episode. Thank you, Dr. Marichli. Now, the final point of discussion today is the outcomes of these surgeries. After the patient had the bone reconstruction, the hardware, the soft tissue reconstruction, what are the outcomes for these surgeries, especially ambulation, revision rates, and bone union? So these, these two types of resections and reconstructions are very different. So the vertebrectomies uh, perform much more reproducibly, and the patients have uh, near normal function after the resection and reconstruction within a short period of time. So these patients can be expected to be able to ambulate uh, and bear weight uh, before even being discharged from the hospital, and their, recon their, their function is essentially normal after they've healed from the surgery. Um, sacrectomies are different because the morbidity that's created by, from the sacral nerve root resections is significant. Um, so it's not because their, uh, their sacrum or their pelvis is unstable, and that's why they have difficulty ambulating or difficulty with function. It's more related to the nerve root resections. Um, because of that, they, need ex they require extensive physical therapy uh, to build back strength in their lower extremities. They also need therapy in order to uh, be able to uh, move their bowels and empty their bladder in a, in a uh, healthy and normal way because those functions are also impacted by the sacrectomy. Based on our research uh, with sacrectomies, all patients uh, are able to bear weight in the seated position and in the standing, standing position. And by about three years out, patients are, are able to ambulate um, unassisted for short distances with these types of reconstructions. That brings us to the end of our discussion. Dr. Mirsley, would you like to share any additional thoughts on this topic? Yeah, our ability to bring in vascularized bone to help augment these reconstructions has really been a, a significant advantage uh, for these patients. Um, in the past, uh, the resections could be done and the hardware could be placed, but it would always just be a matter of time before the hardware would fail and the patient would be facing another large, massive surgery in order to repair the broken hardware. Um, what the vascularized bone allows is for the hardware reconstruction, the hardware construct to have a longer lifespan, potentially an indefinite lifespan, uh, so that the patient hopefully will not have to face another large surgery like this in the future. The vascularized bone creates a biologic construct and a biologic fusion uh, that should last as long as the patient does. That's going to wrap up our discussion for today's episode. I would like to thank you, Dr. Mishli, for joining us today. All right, thank you, Dr. Assad. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, tell your colleagues about it, subscribe, rate us, and review us on the Apple Podcast. You can send your thoughts to MASAAD at mdanderson.org. We would like to point out that the information and material provided during this podcast are just recommendations. There are other medically appropriate options available that are not addressed in this podcast, and every provider must exercise independent medical judgment to determine what is medically appropriate and best practice 
based on each individual patient's medical needs. As a listener of this podcast, you agree to release from liability and hold harmless UTMD Anderson, its agencies, officers, and employees from any incident, injury, illness, death, loss, or damage arising from or relating to, directly or indirectly, this podcast. Thank you everyone for listening. I'm Malka Asad, and this is the MD Anderson Plastic Surgery Podcast.